الجزيرة بودكاست I don't know how I describe myself. I describe myself as shy, definitely, and I like to read, and also extremely involved with all things history, politics, and hopefully activism. Aviatar Rubin is 19 years old. He was born in Jerusalem, and he finished high school about a year and a half ago. I hope to start studying at the Hebrew University as soon as possible, but we'll see when. You say as soon as possible. What is there anything coming up that might delay you going to university? Well, prison, mostly. Eviatar is refusing mandatory service in the Israeli military. We interviewed him in between stints in prison as he went through the convoluted process to get out of the draft. He's one of at least four teenagers in 2022 who became conscientious objectors. It's not a high number. But what could be Israel's most far-right government yet is waiting in the wings, at the same time as its military has faced as much impunity as ever. The execution of a young Palestinian in broad daylight. The Israeli military has killed more Palestinians in the West Bank this year than in any year since 2004. For an army that bills itself as the most moral in the world, any conscientious objection is a notable one. But some Israelis are hoping this new government leads to a new wave of refusals. So today we're hearing from two refusers about why they did it and why their decision is so rare. I'm Halima Dean, and this is The Take. I was born in Jerusalem in 2003. My name is Hagai Matar. I'm 38. I live in Tel Aviv and I'm an Israeli journalist and the executive director of 972 magazine. Eviatar served prison time for his refusal this year, while Hagai served his in the early 2000s. They're a generation apart and I wanted to hear from both of them about how it's changed their lives. I am part of a long history of conscientious objectors who refused to join the army out of rejection of Israeli colonialism, Israeli occupation. We are not willing to take part in this oppression and we are in solidarity with Palestinians resisting the occupation. That is the the basis of our refusal. At the end of the day, I want to do what I think is right, not joining the military, the Israeli military, is, in my view, the default for me. To understand their decisions, I asked Hagai to describe the usual process of being drafted. Could you just explain to me what military conscription in Israel is like? Because it's normally a fairly straightforward process, is it not? You could say that. Basically, all citizens are required to join the army at the age of 18, men and women alike, for varying periods of time. In reality, both Palestinian citizens and ultra-Orthodox are basically exempt from military service, as are girls, which means that a huge chunk of the population doesn't really go, and another huge chunk chooses not to go, but kind of avoids the draft in different ways. 
many Israelis request exemptions, with enlistment dropping from 75% to under 50% since the 1990s. It's pretty easy if you want out. There are also exceptions for pacifism and mental health reasons. Often people who don't want to serve in the army for their own reasons will use one of those to get out, since they don't come with the baggage of conscientious objection. If your refusal smells anything of politics, that you reject specifically the violence used by the Israeli state in the current conditions, then you won't be exempt. So tell us about that. You were sent to prison just to talk through that with us. The standard procedure has always been that you show up at the induction base, you say that you refuse the draft, you're sentenced to a period of two to four weeks. When you come back from prison to the induction base, you're asked to join the army again, you refuse again, you go back to prison. And you can do this kind of back and forth dance for three, four, sometimes five months. And eventually they'll just say, okay, you know, we see you're not going to join the army and give you an exemption. That process was what initially happened to Hagai and what's happening to Eviatar now. But Eviatar said so far it's been pretty comfortable, considering it's Israeli military prison. Except for the last night of his stint before we talked to him earlier this year. I was put in a cell with some more difficult types. And when they found out I was a conscientious objector, they started cursing at me. Uh, asking me if I was gay, insulting my mother, asking me if once I leave the prison, am I going to go to Kalkilia or to Nablus, Arabic cities in the West Bank. And eventually I, I, they uh, indirectly threatened me physically and I felt that I was actually getting pretty stressed. Eviatar said when he complained to the commanding officers, they moved him right away. That was the only really negative experience I had with the other inmates. Everybody else... Even if they were extremely radical in their conservative worldview and frankly very racist against Arabs, they were pleasant and cordial towards me. Haggai's case was during a different time. During the Second Intifada in the early 2000s, there were all kinds of refusals, including from current soldiers. 450 members of Israel Armed Forces telling their government... Hell no, we won't go. To the West Bank or Gaza, that is. Haggai was one of dozens of teenagers who refused before ever joining the armed forces. The estimate was as high as 210 people who refused. Haggai and four others were court-martialed at the same time and sentenced to two years in prison. That was quite unusual for refusers. This was Israeli Army spokesperson Sharon Feingold on their case in an interview from 2004. The Supreme Court in Israel has found that these people are not conscientious objectors. Rather, their uh, objection is a selective refusal to carry out orders. No democracy in the world can allow for people to drag the army into politics. And this is not the platform to voice your political opinions. We had no idea how long it was going to last. The trial itself lasted almost 10 months. Um, and then, you know, continuing to sit in prison. And we didn't even know that once the two years were over, we would get an exemption. They ended up kind of caving and giving us the exemption. But at no point did we know how long this will last. And that was by far the worst torment. And also knowing that our choices 
are painful for our family members, for our spouses, for our friends that are also paying a price for this was very difficult. I can't imagine what it's like with that sort of threat of service hanging over your head along with never knowing when you're getting out of prison, which sort of brings us to the question that you must have been asked all the time. Why did you do it? Well, it's not something that I grew up thinking I would do, although I grew up in a fairly left-wing house where, you know, it was a given that you opposed the occupation. Um, my parents spent in the army, my grandparents spent in the army, and it was, I think, kind of expected that I would go um, to actually that specific unit where they all uh, met. That's what Hagai expected too. Then he started visiting the West Bank through activism, meeting Palestinians and seeing the occupation with his own eyes. And he remembers his breaking point. I went to my first protest in a Palestinian village. This is the the height of the Second Intifada. And I went there, on the one hand, knowing that I'm coming in solidarity and this this is important. On the other hand, I was fearful. You know, there's a lot of violence going around. What if someone attacks me or anything like that? What Haggai found in the village was hospitality. Getting to the village, being warmly welcomed and doing this protest together, and then having Israeli soldiers attack us, the Israelis and Palestinians who are doing the protest together. And for the first time in my life, kind of breaking away from the us and them being Israelis versus Palestinians and the us being we at the demonstration and the them being soldiers brutally attacking a peaceful protest, that I think started the process that ended up leading to my refusal. The more Haggai got involved with his activism, he said, the more he saw actions carried out that he couldn't imagine participating in, actions that still play out today. In the occupied West Bank, Palestinians, unlike Israeli settlers, are subject to military law, and settlers have preferential access to land, resources and building permits. The Israeli army refused to give me to, to build wells for the water in Al-Aqaba. For the third time in as many months, Israeli soldiers came for this Bedouin camp. For the third time, using heavy equipment to destroy structures donated by Western governments, even upending the limited drinking water upon which these Bedouin Palestinians depend. At first, it was kind of like, well, I won't demolish a house. I won't destroy a water well for a nomad community in the middle of the desert. But at some point, it just dawned on me that every single thing that soldiers do in the occupied territories is illegitimate and every single thing the army does outside of the territories is meant to serve and promote the occupation. So that's when I realized I wouldn't feel right being a part of it. Hagai's parents were supportive, he said, and same for Eviatar, the 19-year-old refuser. But Eviatar told me his worldview is completely different from that of most people in his life. Can I just ask what people's reaction to, to your stance and your, your view is? So my family background is truly a more religious, conservative background, but my parents have gone more and more left as the years have gone by. Practically no one really agrees with me. But the more I speak of it, the more I believe that common ground can be found, and I am still extremely optimistic. I have met people that support the army, and when I said words like occupation, 
ethnic cleansing, the treatment of Arabs in the West Bank. They asked me, what is the West Bank? They have never heard of it. So a lot of them simply do not know it. Do you think if more Israelis were aware of the reality of occupation and the reality of what Palestinians are subjected to, that public opinion might change? A hundred percent. I think it could change, but will it be enough? A lot of people know what is happening and what has happened. Zionism is based on eventually the Nakba. Nakba is in Arabic the tragedy, you could say. I think that's the apt translation. The catastrophe, I think. Yeah, catastrophe. Right, Asson in Hebrew. In 1948, under the directive of Ben-Gurion and the Israeli leadership, between half a million to a million Palestinian natives were evicted from the land of Israel and driven into the life of refugees. Many people don't know that, but many people, like extremely radical voices, uh, members of Knesset like Bezalel Smotrich and Israel Katz, you probably don't know them, but their names are important to know do know of it and they they stand in the Knesset, Israeli parliament, and they threaten Arabs in Israel. They say, if you do not keep your head low, we will finish Ben-Gurion's job. We'll get rid of the rest of the Arabs here. This is far-right politician Betsalo Smotrich in October 2021, referencing the country's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. I do not talk to you, anti-Zionists, terrorism supporters, enemies. You are here by accident because Ben-Gurion didn't finish the job and didn't throw you out in 1948. That is the truth. So on the one hand, I think a lot of people would change their minds. I think a lot of people, though, won't. I think as long as Zionism exists, and I say this as a Jewish man, as long as it exists, there will continue to be a conflict. There will continue to be an occupation. Justice can never happen as long as Zionism exists, in my view, and I am extremely radical in this view. A lot of times when people say this, they are branded as anti-Semites. I hope that me, as a Jewish man that grew up religious, I grew up in a religious household in Jerusalem, I hope that that will give me a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, you could say, that I am no anti-Semite, but I realized the reality that we live in and the reality of Zionism, in my views. Essential Middle East Podcast is a weekly show focusing on major topics and current affairs in the Middle East and the wider Muslim world. Not a news show, but rather a podcast that provides in-depth analysis of news and current affairs. We dissect complex geopolitics, challenge perspectives, highlight changing social trends, as well as chart economic developments and emerging opportunities in the Middle East and the Muslim world. So you've taken this course of action. You're pretty much determined to keep getting sent back to prison until the army, in your words, gives up on you. What price do you anticipate paying for this later on in life? So on the one hand, some years ago, there was a a law that bans work recruiters from asking people about their military service. Theoretically, that should never happen. 
Still, though, they could see that there is a gap in the years 18 to 21 in my life and wonder, hmm, interesting, it wasn't in the military there. What I am mostly given up is a very cushy life, you could say. A person such as me that has good education, what I could have done was go into some cushy army job, three years, maybe four, five, take a little extra, and then leave. And what? And this is a very, very known phenomena in Israel. Everybody knows this. Go into something like cybersecurity. The first question at a cocktail party is what unit you served in. For members of Unit 8200, these ties have led to Israel dominating the market for security software and hardware. 25 year old and I could be making six figures, easy life, become frankly exorbitantly rich based off of nothing simply because I'm, I was in the military. I do not want that. I do not want a cushy life of, of money based on the suffering of others. Twenty years on from his refusal, Haggai has already seen how his choice has played out. I have to say, like, for many people, there's this image in Israel that if you don't do your military service, there will be a very dire consequence for it. I have to say that wasn't the case for me. I also have friends who refused, who lost touch with family members, who were kicked out of their homes, who did find it more difficult to find jobs because they did not live in Tel Aviv, which is much more tolerant and much more used to people not serving in the army. Despite the limited impact Haggai said his refusal had on his place in Israeli society, he does see how it shaped some of his relationships with Palestinians he's met. I have a very, very close friend who, a Palestinian friend who was in prison the same time that I was. And we were actually about 400 meters from each other in two adjacent prisons. And we would send letters through our families because you can't send letters in prison. So I sent letters to my family who gave it to his and they gave it to him. And it it meant a lot. Sharing that experience um, is something that builds a bond that is definitely stronger than, than if you have to kind of excuse yourself or try to explain yourself for having been in the army. And, you know, that's not why we did it, but I do think it has value in terms of offering a different path, first and foremost for Israelis, but also in terms of building relationships that are meaningful and based on, on resistance and not on um, compliance. But there are signs there could be more on the way. Israeli organizations helping people refuse the draft say the number of people contacting them has been on the increase. Whether that translates into more refusals is still to come. But Haggai said even small numbers hold significance. I think there's something wonderful about how disproportionate the response is to conscious objection here. Every year, tens of thousands of Israelis join the army and tens of thousands avoid service in all sorts of other ways and go completely unnoticed. But it can be one or five or 10 or 20, the tiniest percentage of people who decide to go to prison openly as a statement as conscious objectors that really rattle society. Why do you think there is this big disproportionate reaction to these small numbers of people who are very vocally refusing to take part in this? Do you think it shows a demonstrate some kind of fear on behalf of the authorities? 
I think so. I think at least in the past, I think this is gradually changing. But in many ways, the army is kind of the holiest um, institution in Israeli society. Sometimes you have public opinion polls on which public institutions do people feel that they can trust. The government, the courts, the army. The army always ranks highest. It's framed as where our children go, our boys and girls uh, who are, you know, risking their lives to protect the whole of society. Um, and it's framed as kind of the most moral army in the world, as it is quite often dubbed uh, in Israeli society. So take all of that and then have someone say, it's not moral, I'm not going to play part of it. And actually the things your, you know, sons and daughters are doing are war crimes is, you know, a huge challenge to the very core foundations of what being in the mainstream Israel, uh, Israeli society means. So that's a, a bit of a contrast to how the Israeli military is perceived around the world. There's increasing recognition by human rights organizations that Israel's occupation of Palestine constitutes apartheid. So I've got two questions. Why do you think so few people are refusing the army? And why is there so little support for refusers among Israelis who may well be on the the left on some issues? So I think first, there's a question of information and accessibility of information. You don't hear about Palestinian lives unless it's Palestinians attacking soldiers or citizens. And so the context is almost always Palestinians as victimizers and Israelis as victims. And that terribly skewed, reversed context really bars people from understanding certain developments. But it's more than that. The Israeli society has gotten to the point where it has very, very little to lose from the occupation. It does not cost as much, neither in blood or in finance or in diplomacy. Arab nations are, you know, lifting their boycott in Israel, signing peace agreements. Fewer and fewer Israelis are being killed, which means that we get free land and cheap labor and all the benefits of occupation without any of the costs. Is there anything, Haggai, that you would say to refusers today? Because it's, it is difficult to, to single yourself out like that. What message would you give to young Israelis who are considering refusing to serve? Go to the West Bank and meet Palestinians. This is something that very, very few Israelis, especially young Israelis, do before conscription. Go and see with your own eyes what it is that you're being asked to do. And I think once you do, you'll understand why you shouldn't be a part of it. And and then there's really no choice. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Chloe K. Lee, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Ashish Mahotra, Nagin Oliai, and me, Halima Hiedin. Alex Rodan is our sound designer. Tim Sinclair mixed this episode. Aya Elmalake and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back 